All right, last week we looked at John the Baptist and his ministry. We talked about this idea of calling, that God's got calling on all of our life, doing your deal, these good works he's created in advance for us to do. And that calling for each of us individually fits into this broader concept of what he's doing in our community and in our world. And so for John, his specific calling was to prepare the way for Jesus. How did he do that? He baptized people. So there's John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, his deal, again, he was calling people out, and they were being dunked in the Jordan River, and that was for everyone who said, I'm going from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God. And then John uh, gave them, or strongly encouraged them uh, to change their life as evidence of that. Is this microphone on anymore? It is? Okay. Today we're going to look at Jesus, the foundation for his ministry, and next week we'll look at his public Introduction. So verse 21, chapter 3, now all the people were baptized. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So uh, right off the bat, just kind of over here on the side, why was Jesus baptized? If John's baptism was for the repentance of sins, everyone else who was coming was doing so as a sign of saying, I'm moving from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God, well, was, was there sin in Jesus' life? Was there something he needed to repent of? No. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. So why did he need to be baptized? In Matthew 3.15, his, his version of this story, Jesus says, the reason I'm being baptized at this time, John, is so that we can fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is baptized to validate John's ministry, What John is doing is from the Lord. This is the way God set everything up. John prepares the way. Then I come after him. And then there's this kind of a baton handoff between John and Jesus. From here on, John begins to uh, step farther and farther, recede farther and farther into the background. And Jesus steps more and more into the foreground. So we have this transition from John to Jesus. Uh, What is going on in Jesus' baptism? Luke actually doesn't spend a lot of time on his baptism, more what happens afterwards. Jesus is coming out of the water. He's praying. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. It says in bodily form. So that means there's a physical dove that, I don't know if it lands on his shoulder or what it does, but John recognizes this dove as the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And for John, that was the sign. That's what he'd been looking for. That's how I know he's the one. You can read John 1 and see the details on that, but that was the sign that John was looking for, that he would know, okay, this is the guy I've been setting the table for. This is the guy I've been preparing the way for. You see a couple of things going on with the dove and then this voice from heaven, the Father in heaven speaking uh, over and to his son. Two things are happening. One, Jesus' identity is being confirmed, and the second thing is he's being empowered to live out his calling. You'll see a slide up here. that All of these scriptures are taken from Luke 1 and Luke 2, and there are things that are said about who Jesus is, and there are things that are said about what he will do. And we see both of those things coming together in this one verse, this scene in the Jordan River. We have the Father in heaven saying, this is my son, my beloved son, or the son whom I love, your Bible may say. That's an identity statement. Jesus' identity as a beloved son is based on his relationship with the Father, not based on anything that he's done, in whom I'm well pleased. If if you like the phrase, we can say that's, that was Jesus' standing 
before the Lord. His standing or his status, I think standing maybe is a better word. How did God view him? He viewed him as one in whom he took great delight, great joy, and great pleasure. And again, the timing is important. That's before Jesus had done anything. Before he preached his first sermon, worked his first miracle, called his first disciple, we see his identity is confirmed as a son and as a son in whom God is pleased. And that ties back again into what was said about Jesus, the angel Gabriel, uh, through Simeon the prophet, through the angels who appeared to the shepherds. They were saying all through his early years, this is who this guy is going to be. And then we have this stamp from heaven that says, yes, this is who he is. And then the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form. He's empowering Jesus for ministry. So uh, if you can make this distinction, Jesus was the son of God from conception. He's the son of God eternally. We see the man Jesus, the son of God, from conception. That's what Gabriel says to Mary. He becomes the Messiah, or he's anointed to be the Messiah or the Christ at his baptism. That's when he's filled with the Spirit to live out his calling. You see a parallel phenomenon in Acts chapter 1. Jesus tells the disciples, y'all wait, and when the Holy Spirit comes on you, then you'll be my witnesses. Then you can live out your calling once you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. In Luke, with Jesus' Jesus's baptism, the Holy Spirit's seen as a dove. In Acts, we have these tongues of fire resting on the disciples' heads. In both cases, it's, it's the same thing going on. Before God sends them into ministry, he equips them, both Jesus and the disciples, with his spirit. Let's move on. Genealogy, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That's the age for public service being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. We're going to skip all the way down to chapter to verse 38. You don't need to hear me butcher all those names. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we have this genealogy that Luke puts right here before Jesus steps out. Luke and Matthew's genealogies are different. For some of you, that you may care about that, so we'll kind of do this on the side. What's going on here? What are the differences? Uh, you'll see the slide behind me. We'll walk you through that. Uh, Matthew goes from Abraham down to Jesus. Luke goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Uh, Luke's is longer. There's about 60 names in Luke that are not found in Matthew's. But really what you have going on, nobody can explain completely the differences between the two because we don't have any other evidence to, um, to justify a conclusion. So here's your best shot or my best shot at that. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he wants everybody to know Jesus is the Messiah. So he goes back to Abraham. This is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that says, through you all the nations on the earth will be blessed. How does that happen? Through the Messiah. And so Matthew wants all of his Jewish readers to know this is him. Jesus is the Messiah, and he traces his lineage through Joseph, through his legal father who's adopted him because for in Jewish culture, inheritance passes through the men. It passes from father to son, from father to son. Luke is writing to Gentiles. And so what he wants to say is Jesus is not just the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He goes all the way back to Adam, this promise in Genesis 3.15 that says where uh, the, God says in the midst of cursing or judging the serpent, Adam and Eve, he says to the serpent, there's going to come one who's going to crush your head. And the Jews took that as a messianic promise. There's going to be one who's going to crush the head of the accuser of Satan. And Luke is saying it's... Jesus. He's writing to a Gentile audience. 
And so he goes all the way. And because Mary is Jesus' only biological parent, he takes her and he works all the way back through Mary's family to get to Adam. So you have two different purposes. What Matthew's trying to do is establish he's the Messiah. And so we're going to go through his legal family tree. What Luke is trying to establish is he's the savior of the world. I'm going to go through his biological family tree to show you that he is tied back into Adam and uh, ultimately to the Lord. Next, we'll look at these temptations. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus said, it's not, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I, get, and I can give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So right off of this baptism, this high moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, Father says from heaven, I love you. I'm pleased with you, immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days he fasts. And remember we said, Jesus, he's fully human, so you figure out how you feel after 40 days. That's how he feels. And for 40 days he's being tempted. The temptations don't just come at the end. What we see is the culmination of this 40 days of tempting. So the, the enemy is tempting him over the course of... Of these 40 days. And if you notice, all of these temptations hit at this statement that was just made at his baptism. All of these temptations are directed uh, at Jesus' identity and at his calling. Two things. One, these temptations are real. Jesus could have sinned. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. He's a person just like us. We've said before, he, according to Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He willingly gave up those elements of his divinity, when he became a man, he could have sinned. The Bible calls him the second Adam. Just like the first Adam sinned, the second Adam could have sinned as well. If a temptation cannot be uh, entered into, then it's not real. I'm not tempted to rig the Super Bowl. I don't have a hand in that. There's, no, I, there's nothing that I can do. It's not a real temptation. When I coached rec league soccer, I was often tempted to rig those games because I could do something. I could forget about the kid who wasn't very good. I could leave him on the bench a little bit longer, whatever I wanted. That's a real temptation for me because I could actually do something about it. Rigging the Super Bowls, not because I have no hand in that at all. For these things to truly be temptations, then there were things that Jesus could have entered into. Again, Hebrews 4 said he's tempted in every way just as we are. And our temptations are real and so were his. Now, they were very specific for him. I, you and I will never, ever, ever be tempted to turn rocks into bread because we can't do that. It's not a temptation for us. We don't have the power to turn rocks into bread. 
we can't, the, the Lord could do that through us, but we don't have the power inherent in ourselves to do that. Jesus did. And that's why the enemy went after him in these specific ways. He's going after Jesus' identity, and he's going after his calling. He's saying to Jesus, since you're the son of God, why don't you, you're starving. It's been 40 days. Why don't you draw on your power as the son of God and feed yourself? Meet your own needs. And what Jesus says is, no, I'm not going to be that kind of Messiah. I'm the kind of Messiah who only does the things that he sees his Father in heaven doing. I'm the kind of Messiah who's going to be led by the Spirit. I'm the kind of Messiah who's going to depend and trust on my Father to meet my needs. I laid aside my omnipotence when I took on flesh and blood. I'm not going to pick it back up again now. That's not the kind of Messiah I am. And so the devil says, all right, well, here, I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the world. You're going to get all of this. This is Psalms 2, Psalm 2, 6 through 8. It's up here on the screen. This is what the uh, enemy is probably referring to. As for me, this is God speaking. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So what Satan is saying to him is, you're going to get it all anyway. I already know that. Your father, he's already promised you everything. Let me give you a shortcut. I don't know, maybe the enemy doesn't know exactly what God has in mind for Jesus, what the Father has in mind for the Son. But what he's saying is, you don't need to go through any of that. Let's just cut right to the chase. Flip to the last page, I'll give you all of it. All you have to do is worship me. I'm going to give you everything that your Father has promised you, just in another way. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be that kind of a Messiah either. I don't take shortcuts. Again, I only do what I see the Father doing. I'm going to follow his will for me. I'm going to trust that his way is best. Okay, well, let's do this then. Zoom forward. We're on the top of the highest point of the temple. Listen, we know you're special. I know that. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the savior of the world. God's not going to let anything happen to you. So why don't you jump off of this high point We know your Father will save you, and that's going to let everybody else know how special you are. Let's work this PR stunt, this spectacle, and it will give God an opportunity to save you in a dramatic way, and then you're not going to have to worry about it. Everybody will know who you are. This humble route, you don't have to do that. This is quicker. This is better. Get your name out there. Everybody will know that you're special to God because he is not going to let you hurt yourself. We see that in the psalm. Even the devil can quote the Bible out of context, but he can do it. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be that kind of Messiah either. I don't test God. I trust him. I'm not. No, I'm not going to draw attention to myself in that way. The way I've come is humble as a servant. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's what I'm going to do. So get away from me. Those three temptations are all laser-focused in on Jesus' calling and his identity. None of us will be tempted in those same three ways. The enemy is never going to say to you, turn rocks into bread because you can't. He's never going to take you someplace and say, I'm going to give you all of the world because you're never going to inherit it anyway. That's not a temptation for us. That's not a promise that's been given to us that we're going to be kings and queens over everything. He's not going to lead us up to a high place and say, jump off. Our temptations are going to be specific to our identity and our calling. We'll come back to that real quick. We'll close, or let me wrap up this section of Scripture, verse 14. 
Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Next week we'll look at his opening sermon, his understanding of what God had called him to do. What I want you to see is as soon as this calling and identity was tested, Jesus passes the test and then moves right in to ministry. He steps into God's calling. Let's see that next slide, Grady. There's this template. I'm going to call it for ministry. Maybe it's better for life. What you see is Jesus, is his identity is confirmed. It's not established. He was already the Son of God. That was just confirmed. Then he was empowered for ministry. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. Then immediately, that calling is challenged by the devil. It's interesting. The word for tempt can also be translated test. Same word. And I'm wondering if it's a matter of perspective. From the enemy, it's a temptation. He's trying to get Jesus to disqualify himself from his calling. If I can get him, this is the enemy's thinking, if I can get him to be any other kind of Messiah, then I win. If I can get him to be the kind of Messiah who meets his own needs, I win. If I can get him to be the kind of Messiah who takes shortcuts, then I win. If I can get him to be the kind of Messiah who tests God, then I win. His calling is immediately tested. This is not to scare you. Some of you just raised your hand and said, I want to be a pastor at work. Guess what? That's an issue of calling, and it will be tested very soon. The enemy will try to tempt you to send that away, to disqualify yourself from that calling because of your behavior. What the Lord will do is test. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God either initiating or allowing testing to show what's in people's heart. I think that's what he's doing here with Jesus. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. God wants to see. Let's see what he's got. In Genesis, what is it, 22, Abraham is tested. Take your son, Isaac, your only son. I want you to sacrifice him on that mountain. That's a test. Let me see what's in your heart. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're tempted by the devil. Did God really say you can't eat the fruit from that tree? I wonder if Adam and Eve had resisted if that temptation would be described as a test. I wonder if Abraham had given in if that test would be described as a temptation. Both cases, what you have, either the enemy or God is taking advantage of circumstances. They're coming at the same thing from two different angles. God's saying, I want to see what's in your heart. The enemy is saying, I want, you to, I want to disqualify you from your calling. And so we want to be aware our calling, whatever your sense of that is, will be tested by the Lord. Let me see what's in you. The background for Jesus' temptations is Deuteronomy, or is, excuse me, yes, Deuteronomy 8, where God says about his people, I led you in the wilderness in order to test you so that I could figure out what was in your heart. It says the same thing about Abraham. I wanted to know what was in your heart. He knows everything. So why does he have to test us? Because he wants to know everything. He wants to know what's in your heart. And the enemy will try to tempt you to squander your calling, to disqualify yourself from it in some way or other. And then you see your calling is lived out. When you kind of, quote, pass the test, then you're free to live out your calling. Doesn't mean We see the enemy says, I'm coming back at a more opportune time. It doesn't mean you're off the hook forever. It just means that there's this kind of you can hear the starting gun, and then you're free to move out in your ministry a little more directly. I want you to, can we see the next one? I want you to do this. 
Some of you hate when I ask you to peg yourself, but this is what I want you to do. This is important, that first section that we're looking at, the idea of identity being confirmed and your calling being empowered for your calling. It's necessary to hold both of those things together if you're going to live well. And so I've created this little thing, quadrant, coordinate, whatever it is, and here's what I want you to do. The x-axis is who you are. That's your sense of identity. All the way to the right, you're confident in who you are in Christ. You're secure. You're engaging. On the bottom, the y-axis is what you do. And we want to be all the way at the top. We want to be confident in what God's called us to do. We want to be engaged in what he's asked us to do. And I want you to put yourself in one of those four quadrants. We'll call the top left quadrant one. That's performing. You're working for God in order to rest in God. So for you, work comes first. And when I say work, I don't necessarily want you thinking about what you do nine to five. I want you to think about what you do uh, that's kingdom-oriented. I want you to think about what you do, quote, for God. If you're a should person, then that's probably where you live. I should do that. I should read my Bible. I should be in a small group. I should go to church. I should serve in some way then most likely you're a top-left person. You might not know it, but you're performing for God. How do you know? Inside, you're tired. You feel like you're constantly on a treadmill. Out is good. That's why it's in the black. You're really good at serving other people. Up in your relationship with God. In, in terms of how you're doing with yourself and connecting with other believers, is in the red. You're not so hot at that. Most of your focus in terms of your Christian life is, I'm going to serve, 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 do things for the kingdom. Second, top right, sweet spot, that's where you want to be. You're working kingdom-wise from a place of rest. You're confident in who you are in the Lord. You understand you're a son, you're a daughter. God loves you. He's pleased with you. And from that place, then you're free to live out your calling. There's peace in your heart. You're bearing fruit in your life. Up and out, you're doing all of those things. You're living in all of those dimensions. Bottom right, We'll call that quadrant three. You're fat and happy. Up and in are great. Out is lacking. You're resting from doing anything. Permanent vacation. Some people, that's their understanding of grace. I only do what I want. It's a misunderstanding of grace. It's lazy Christians. Apathetic. And we can kind of put all kinds of different reasons for why that is. Most people fall in quadrants one and three. I'll say that. And then quadrant four, bottom left, insecure in who you are in the Lord, ineffective in terms of calling. There's no rest in your life in terms, there's no work. You're, there's not, there's, if that, you're a mess if you're in that bottom left. And, and we've all been there at some point, 100%. But if you're there, you're miserable in terms of your relationship with the Lord. And so, again, if that's you, um, there's hope. So I just want you to think about where you are. And if you put yourself on one of those axis markers, those are electric fences and you're dead. So you have to put yourself in a quadrant. Make a decision. Everybody got one? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I just want to know if you've got one. Okay? So this is important. We go back to that previous slide, Grady? So, that first 
this template for ministry, what comes first, your identity is confirmed and you're empowered by the Spirit for your calling. And that quadrant thing, that's why it's important. If that's you, that's, that's how you get to that second quadrant. That's how you get to that place of being um, in that sweet spot. You have a strong sense, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm loved by God, he's pleased with me. And out of that solid place of relationship and security, then I'm free to live out in the power of the Spirit the calling that he has on my life. Recognizing, as soon as I say that, that calling is going to be tested. Sometimes it's tested by the Lord. Sometimes it's the enemy trying to lure me into disqualifying myself. From my perspective, it's the same because I can't see what's going on in the spiritual realm. All I know is what I'm experiencing. Whether it's a test or a temptation, I don't know. I just know my response, like Jesus' response, has got to be, in every case, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to take care of myself. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to take shortcuts. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to test God. I'm going to trust the Lord. Whether it's a temptation or a test, I don't know. All I know is my response is, I've got to trust the Lord in this. And that's where you're going to find yourself. And on the other side of that, then there's, again, freedom for you to live out your calling. I want to close with this. This is not, I hesitated to tell this story because I don't want to draw any attention to myself, but I do want you to hear this, this whole idea of identity being confirmed, calling being empowered, and then it being tested. I felt since I was 22 years old, 21, no, 22 years old, I felt like the Lord said, you're, you're my call, part of my calling on your life, one of the good works for you is to plant a church. I know I'd, I'd no idea what that looked like, but I felt that. And I was probably, at this point, 10 years later, nah, nine years later. I'm probably 31 years old, and we finally made a step. So this thing that's been in my heart forever, I've finally taken a step. The guys who I've worked for, Tom, and the guys at Riverstone say, yeah, we feel like now is the time. And so we have this conference uh, in February of that year, and uh, we bring in a guy who's a local pastor. He's helped start 18, 19, 20 churches. We thought, he'll be a great guy. We'll let him come in, and he'll kind of stir um, up church planting in people, and then I'll stand up and say, hey, this is what we're doing, and we'll have people come. It'll be great. And so we did a couple of sessions, and then we all had lunch. Uh, some guys who were helping start Stonebridge, the leadership of Riverstone, the church that we were planted from, and this guy who we brought in. And we were all talking uh, at lunch, and this guy said, hey, listen, I need to tell y'all something. And we're all like, all right. And he said, don't let David plant a church. And we all said, what? He's like, he'll fail. He doesn't have it in him. He doesn't have the passion. If you do that, you're doing him and anyone who tries to go with him a disservice. He will not make it as a church planter. He will fail. And I remember hearing that in this room. This, I'd never, I didn't even know this guy. It shouldn't have bothered me. I'd known Tom Tanner since I was 12. I should have said, well, he believes in me. I have these guys who are willing to start a church who they believed in me, but this stranger in that moment who said he doesn't have what it takes, he's going to fail, that got into me. It took me six or eight or nine months to kind of work through all of that and get back where I felt like I had my feet underneath me. It's like I got the, the breath knocked out of me for a a pretty significant stretch of time, not just in terms of length, but also in terms strategically of what we were trying to do. We were trying to lay a foundation and pull people together 
to do this. It's, and that looking back at that, I can see now, as soon as I kind of made a step in terms of calling, it was tested in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that the Lord did not inspire what he said. I'm not saying the devil did either. I'm just, that's just what happened. And then my response to that was not good. As I, I shrunk back, and it took me a long time, again, to get up to work all the way through that. I tried to shrug it off and say it didn't matter, but it did matter. And I didn't engage with the Lord on that uh, at a significant enough level. And for some of y'all, the sense that I have as we move into ministry is you're kind of where you're there. You have this sense of what God is calling you to, but maybe it's not a voice from a person, but there's a voice that says, you don't have it. You're going to fail. You're not going to make it. And it's a lie. And what I want you to see is it's the same thing happened to Jesus. And this is a pivot point for you. What are you going to do? Are you going to throw in the towel? Say, all right, I guess my, I sinned. Maybe there's a real sin in your life. And the enemy is using that to keep you from engaging in ministry. Maybe there's something from your past. You feel dumb. You feel unqualified. I don't know. But the enemy is using that. To hold you back. And my encouragement to you this morning is to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to allow a lie to keep me from fully living out my calling. That's a hard thing sometimes to step into. But I want to strongly encourage you as we close. It's it's 1030. Uh, we're going to spend a little time in ministry. I've already told Penny we're going to run a little late. So some of you who have kids... You don't need to feel like you need to rush up there. I don't want you to miss this. Uh, Ministry teams, if y'all would come forward. Bo's going to come and he's going to sing. And I want you to hear the words of this song. And then as the Lord stirs your heart, I want you to come forward. And I want you to let these guys pray for you. And I want you to tell them, this is what was said. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm hearing in my head. And this is how it's shutting me down. We, I want to see you, and God wants to see you fully living out your calling. But you can't fully live out your calling till you're confident in who you are in the Lord, until he's filled you with the Spirit to empower you to do that. And what the enemy is going to do is anything he can to squeeze that out of you. You're not a son, you're a stepson. He doesn't love you, he tolerates you. He's not pleased with you. Because of A, B, C. You're weak. You don't have what it takes. Anything he can do to shut you down, that's what he's going to do. And if that's where you are this morning, please allow us to pray with you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that this pattern set in Scripture, we see Jesus before he does anything. His identity as a son is confirmed. You love him and are pleased with him. And you would say the same thing, and you do say the same thing to every man and woman in this room. You loved us so much that you sent your son, whom you love,
to die for us. You say that you take great delight in us, that you rejoice over us with singing. Those are true statements that are said from the throne of heaven this morning. God, I thank you that there's calling on the lives of every man and woman in this room. And I thank you that all of the resources of heaven are at their disposal to live out that calling, chiefly your spirit. And God, we recognize that we have an enemy who roars like a lion. You speak in a still, small voice. And he hollers and screams. my prayer for everyone in here who is hearing the screaming and not the still small voice would you this morning God speak strongly and clearly to them I pray no one in here would leave with any doubt in their heart that you love them, that they're a son and a daughter, that you're pleased with them, and that you have a calling on their life that they can step into in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.